Hello, I am Joshua P. Warren, and this is Joshua P. Warren Daily. And there is an interesting news story out about the death of Alexander the Great. Now, of course, Alexander the Great is truly the greatest military commander in all of history. His accomplishments were absolutely phenomenal. He was, of course, Greek Uh, King of Macedonia, he was born in 356 B.C., and he died 323 B.C. at the age of only 32 years old. We'll get back to his death in a minute. But I went to college at the University of North Carolina at Asheville, and they really pride themselves on their humanities department. And so uh, we spent a lot of time studying some of the great figures from that period of history and Alexander the Great, he was, uh, he almost seemed like uh, an immortal person. And uh, that's really significant because he himself, I think it's quite clear, believed that he was part God, that he was part human, part God, that his father was Zeus. And this really goes back to the fact that um well his uh his f- father so to speak is it was was the king uh of Macedonia there king philip and king philip he took on a wife who was this very exotic kind of creepy lady and uh was involved with a lot of mysticism and cult kind of stuff and um got her pregnant and that became little Alexander the Great but you see there was something fishy about the way the the baby was conceived supposedly um, she had some vision of being struck by a lightning bolt in the stomach that night and then later on King Philip actually sort of like peeked into her bedroom one night and saw her all uh, wrapped up with this snake, you know, sleeping with this snake in bed, which creeped him out. And he, you know, his feelings toward her kind of cooled very rapidly after that. He he seemed like he was kind of afraid of her. Like he thought, maybe I really have gotten wrapped up with some kind of demonic creature here. And um, so... It's it's debatable, I guess, if you want to look at it that way, as to exactly how he was conceived. But I think she very clearly believed that it wasn't, in fact, King Philip who was Alexander's father, that it was Zeus. And this was sort of an idea that was gradually implanted in Alexander's head as he got older. And, I mean, his dad was a great, very successful warrior and taught him a lot, but probably one of the best things his dad did was uh, when Alexander was a teenager, he got Aristotle to come and personally tutor Alexander. And of course, uh, Aristotle was one of the greatest minds who has ever lived. And so it was like this just amazing combination of, of factors that came together to produce this young man who by the time he was 18 was already a, uh, a brilliant seasoned military man and then um when his father got killed by an assassin and alexander took over 
then he just went on the rampage and decided that he was going to do what seemed like the impossible, which is to take over all of Asia, you know, to go fight the Persians. And so the whole story of Alexander's life is of one sort of surreal, astounding accomplishment and victory after another. Uh, He was very much into mysticism. Um, In fact, before he began his big campaign to really go out and, and take Asia, he um, he went to the oracle at Delphi to see what she said about his chances. And when he got there, he was informed, much to his dismay, that, well, I'm sorry, but uh, the oracle does not operate in the winter. You're going to have to come back in the spring. And Alexander was uh, never one to take no for an answer. And so as an early display of his character, he went and found out where she lived. And he and his men physically dragged her out of the house to take her to the Oracle, at which point she started screaming. She said, listen, listen, you're invincible. You're invincible, okay? That's what you want to know. Yes, you're invincible. And that's all he needed to hear. And it sure as hell seemed like she was right. Because when he went off on this incredible campaign, which spanned about 12 years, uh, it was just... I mean, let me give you an example of some of the odds. I mean, uh, at one point, he had 40,000 men. And he was going up against a group of Persians that had hundreds of that, maybe even a million men. And by the time that battle was over, not only, of course, did... Alexander win but he only had like a hundred of his men get killed they had killed over 300,000 of the Persians and taken countless others uh, prisoner and I mean there's just no great explanation no matter how brilliant of a military strategist you are for exactly how he was able to do this this guy was so confident one of the famous stories about Alexander the Great is that, you know, he was traveling through and he knew the legend of what's called the Gordian Knot, which there was this little town there uh, that at that time was a part of the Persian Empire that he was sweeping through. And the story was that an oracle had once said in this little town, the next man who comes into this town pulling some kind of an ox cart or some kind of cart, you know, he is going to be the king. And so there was this guy named. Gordia who came in with this cart and they immediately said you're the king and they just made this guy the king and his cart was tied together with this gigantic knot that was such a a tight huge complex mess that nobody could ever figure out how to how to untangle it and his son uh, who was named Midas actually uh, preserved that cart and kept it in the town and the story was that whoever could figure out how to unravel the Gordian knot was destined to be the ruler of all of Asia, which is exactly what Alexander the Great wanted. So when he got into town, he says, bring me to the Gordian knot. So they took him to the knot. He messes around with it, and he realizes you can't even find the ends on this thing. It just, it, again, you know, it seems like it's impossible to untie it. And so, 
and this is an example of the the flair that that he had he felt so confident that he was destined to take over asia so entitled to that position he just pulled his sword out and cut the knot cut the knot and the knot fell to pieces and he says there you go it's done you know so he was just a guy who i don't know you could say he was disrespectful you could say he was brutal but he was a guy who just got shit done you know and um some amazing construction uh feats building huge big causeways across the water to the uh i think of the island of tyria i mean he just anyway look i could go on and on telling you stories about him and and eventually he did go to an oracle that told him yes you know zeus is your is your father he believed that to such an extent that he uh his wish was to be buried on you know the mountain where zeus was it didn't that didn't happen but anyway so the point to this is when he was 32 years old he came down with this mysterious illness to this day nobody knows what it was now granted uh maybe a year or two before that he had gotten shot by an arrow because he was one of those guys who he had no fear i mean he he wasn't like leading his troops from the back no he was from the front i mean he would go up there and he would personally fight and um so he finally got hit with an arrow in the in that nicked his lung and and so he was never quite the same after that but anyway he'd been sickly for a while and then all of a sudden he got this mystery illness where he started feeling kind of um well he had some abdominal pain and uh some tingling and stuff like that and then finally you know he died so um the the mystical thing is they claim that after he died that his body showed absolutely no decomposition for at least six or seven days and so this was considered by many proof that sure enough this was not a mere mortal that there was something about this man that uh transcends and he never lost a battle he accomplished every goal he set for himself and uh and he did things that are you know practically superhuman and so the question has been what happened to him and how do we explain this fact that his body did not decompose eventually they took his body they put it in a gold box and they traveled with it um they were taking it back to greece but then um, it was actually intercepted by some of the rulers in Egypt who decided to hang on to it. And uh, they kept it there on display for a while. But then eventually when Cleopatra died, it just sort of disappeared. Uh, Cleopatra was actually one of his father's wives as well. But uh, anyway, so to this day, it's, it's again another extenuation of the, the mystery. Like nobody knows where the remains of Alexander the Great are not to mention this fantastic golden box uh, they did find the remains of his father king philip in a an impressive tomb but nobody knows where the remains of alexander the great are and i would not be a bit surprised if some kind of you know some dictator out there some despot or some person who, who has a, a huge 
ruler's ego has obtained some or all of those remains and practically worships them because in fact even after he died after Alexander died his men when they would have military meetings they would put like his crown and his scepter and all this stuff at the head of the table uh, as if he were there in spirit so anyway here's this news story it's been repeated in a lot of different outlets uh, this particular version is from Fox News it says the death of Alexander the Great one of history's most famed conquerors has long been a mystery and theories surrounding his death are endless did he die of typhoid or malaria was his death caused by alcoholism was he murdered with poison says while we uh, may never know for sure Catherine Hall a senior lecturer at the Dunden School of Medicine at the University of Otago in New Zealand has provided a new possibility she says that she studied everything that's available about Alexander the Great and she thinks that he may have died from a neurological disorder called Julian Barre syndrome or GBS again at the age of 32 now the reason she believes this is that when you get Julian Barre syndrome basically what happens is you get gradually paralyzed and you fall into a coma it's like almost the the sleeping sickness where you look like you're dead for quite a while but you're actually still alive you're just paralyzed now I looked up this condition and they still have no explanation for what causes that condition so I mean you know again you're just adding you know it's like a riddle inside of a mystery inside of an enigma so so you know who knows but her theory here is that uh, he may have actually not been dead when they thought he was dead and so that's that explains why he did not compose because it took him I don't know maybe a week to actually die and he may or may not have been conscious during that period of time so this is just you know this is just a theory and there's no way to know how realistic it it may or may not be but knowing what i know about the the story the legacy of alexander the great as soon as i read that it made me start thinking in general about this idea that it's it's sort of ironic we think that all right you have a spiritual being a spiritual essence a soul and that is the important part of you focus on that because this body and this you know physical form is just temporary it's worm food uh and so therefore you know forget about the the physical body and the carnal needs and all that as much as you can to stay focused on the spirit and yet many of these same um, religions and philosophies that hold that kind of opinion also celebrate relics meaning that they celebrate the idea that certain bodies of saints do not decompose because that they are um, they're somehow divine 
or um, that in some other way that the physical form can become affected with some kind of um, spiritual power. Like, if, like for example, I'm looking up here, just the Catholic Church, and again, the, the, the relics, by the way, I mean, relics are celebrated in, uh, let's see, Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, Islam, shamanism, okay, um, and it actually says here, uh, the the term relic derives from the Latin reliquae, meaning remains, or to leave behind or abandon. But it's really interesting because when you just start looking at like the Catholic Church, for example, they have different um, different categories of relics. And I'm not Catholic. I mean, I I've been to Catholic churches a few times, and I've participated in some kind of you know, Catholic uh, mass and things like that, because I've I've been involved with people who who do that, but uh, I don't know much about this. So, but here here are the three different classes of relics. A first class relic includes items directly associated with the events of Christ's life, which would be manger, cross, etc., or the physical remains of a saint like a bone, a hair, skull, a limb, etc. And it says, Traditionally, a martyr's relics are often more prized than the relics of other saints. Part of the saint that was significant to the saint's life are more prized. So, for instance, it says, King Saint Stephen of Hungary's right forearm is especially important because of his status as a ruler. Uh, a famous theologian's head may be his most important relic, like the head of uh, St. Thomas Aquinas was removed by the monks at the Abbey, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, that's like a first-class relic. A second-class relic is an item that a saint owned or frequently used. So it could be a crucifix, a rosary, a book. And then a third-class relic is any object that is touched to a first- or second-class relic. In most cases, we're talking about small pieces of cloth. Uh, oil used to be popular, but basically, I guess, if you have a little cloth and you touch it to a first or second class relic, well, now it's like your own little relic souvenir. So anyway, it, it is weird, isn't it, how that um, we live in a world that ultimately prizes the, the spiritual body and the soul above anything physical and yet we also act as though there is some property of the physical that can be affected by and even retain the power of the spiritual and since we're talking about Christianity this being so prevalent in the Catholic Church it reminds me very much of what I've always found to be one of the most intriguing parts of the Bible in the New Testament uh, the book of Mark 5.30, where basically Jesus is walking through a town, and uh, a woman who has a medical problem, she comes up to Jesus, and uh, you can almost imagine she just sort of crawls up to Jesus, maybe she's bowing or whatever, and she reaches out and she grabs the helm of his robe, and was instantly healed. But the strangest thing is, and I'm reading this verbatim, it says, at once... Jesus was aware 
that power had gone out from him. Turning to the crowd, he asked, Who touched my clothes? Uh, His disciples answered, You can see the crowd pressing in on you, and yet you ask, Who touched me? So apparently, it's like there were, you know, there were a bunch of people there who were trying to get at him, but one woman in particular touched his robe, and bang, she was healed. But he felt this. So the question becomes, well, it didn't didn't say she touched Jesus. It says she touched his robe. So how did this power, the, you know, whatever this power is, how did it travel through the fabric of the robe? And furthermore, how was he so connected to that robe that he could feel the power go through it and and beyond all that what is the power you know what what are we talking about what is this flow so see these are big fascinating questions and you could say well look well the answer to all this is that it's all just a bunch of hooey you know that's one way of looking at it and i understand that but let's pause for a minute and let's think about the possibility that there is something happening here that whether or not Alexander the Great was part God or part divine being or part alien or whatever, or whether or not any of these saints have some ability that allows their bodies to stay intact without decomposing, or whether or not you believe the story that there's something magical about Jesus's robe if there is any truth to all that then it does show that there is some kind of a relationship between the physical structure of the world and this more divine structure where they are able to affect each other and both carry some kind of power and i find that especially relevant when we look at this thing called psychometry which i bring up from time to time which is the idea that certain objects might be able to hold a certain kind of energy I tend to believe that more than not. But it does put you in an odd position when you're trying to figure out where to, you know, where to and how to prioritize that relationship you have with the spiritual realm versus the physical realm. And exactly where is the point at which that fuzzy boundary exists to begin with? Uh, how much of a difference is there between the physical and the spiritual? Um, you you certainly extend beyond what we can only see as your physical body. So these are all interesting questions to ponder. And look, I don't have an exact answer for you, but I do think about this. And I do think about how even this applies to the idea of ghosts you don't usually see a naked ghost so if a ghost is just the product of the bio energy alone well then you'd think all the ghosts running around would be naked but no usually they're clothed now that makes sense when we're talking about some kind of an imprint from the past like a movie that's replaying it itself and you're just seeing it as it was but that becomes a little more complicated if you consider that some of these ghosts may be entities that for some reason are um, are still you know 
showing themselves as being clothed, as if the entity is choosing how it wants to be seen. Does it want to be seen young or old, or uh, in a certain type of dress, certain style of this or that? I mean, you know, these are all interesting questions that make us have to, to dig into that relationship, that connection between the physical and non-physical, between the spiritual and the corporeal. So think about that, and I don't know if this new story about Alexander the Great gives us any you know deeper insight, but uh, it definitely does make us think anew about that and all these other characters that uh, historically we we think may have some connection to the divine. A couple more things I'll hit on here real quick before I wrap up this podcast because I do have a busy Sunday. I'm going to be uh, the guest on a live two-hour radio program broadcast from Toronto, Canada. It's called Nocturnal Frequencies. And... Uh, so that's coming up here a little bit later. I'm getting ready. That, that'll that be a fun interview, I have no doubt. But I got this email. Um, actually, first let me tell you this. I've gotten great feedback so far from the tones that I've been able to capture using Parasymatics 2.0. And, of course, I recently played for you the tone from Stonehenge, and I told you that it was similar to the tone produced by the Great Pyramids at Giza. And um, I've been interested to see if anybody listens to these tones and has any feelings or thoughts about them. And when I posted the tone from the Great Pyramids on my Facebook page, I've gotten a lot of different feedback, but here's one in particular from uh, Dominic, who lives in the UK. He's a good guy. He's been uh, supporting my work for a long time. And he says, after listening to this strange sound effect for the first time, very early in the morning, while half awake in bed, when I closed my eyes again, it seemed to lead to a blast of hypnagogia, where I started seeing bright visions that I couldn't quite remember, what was apart from the fluid bright fields of color. Now you see, that's interesting, isn't it? Um an interpretation like that of of the sound the tone that the pyramids make and so feel free to send me emails like that or to post something on Facebook or to tweet me something where you just say here's my impression you know here's here's how i felt when i listened to this or here's something interesting that happened after i listened to it or or, or i used the sigil from it etc uh, got another email from a lady who sent me a video, which is it's a um, it's a video produced by one of these sort of watch groups that's trying to sway public opinion on the use of lethal autonomous weapons. So basically, this video shows a guy in a suit standing on a stage and he says look at what this little drone can do and he pulls out a little drone that fits in the palm of his hand and he says this thing has 
face recognition technology, which is very, very good, by the way. I just recently watched a 60 Minutes where they were giving an update on how good that's gotten. It's scary. And he says it also has explosive charge. So we program into this drone the facial characteristics of a certain terrorist or whatever and he goes watch this and then he throws it and uh, and it goes and it zips around and there's a dummy over there and it goes up to the dummy and goes right up to its forehead and goes bang puts a hole in its forehead and kills it and the guy says look at that isn't that wonderful and so um and as soon as i watched that i thought well you know that seems like something that probably already exists and uh they even were showing you know uh renderings of like whole big bombers flying over and just dropping out what what looks like a swarm of these drones and each drone is programmed with a target and so it's going down and it swoops down and then they just go up and they boom 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 um now, look, I don't know how serious this video is, and this is produced by a group apparently called AutonomousWeapons.org, but at the end of it, you know, you have some scientist who comes on and says, listen, we don't want this. This is terrible. If we start giving artificial intelligence the ability to kill us, where do you think that's going to lead? And so... Again, regardless of the legitimacy of, of where the technology is right now, I see the point that's being made here. I mean, it is a very attractive idea, isn't it? That it, we know that governments are going to go to war, and we know that we're going to have to fight terrorists, and we know that people are going to kill people. That's just the way it is. You may as well accept that. People are going to have to kill people sometimes. And so one way of doing that is to fly over a place and drop out bombs and oh well if you happen to be there that day on a picnic well guess what too bad you're going to get blown up or, and the water is going to get contaminated it's, or you know we drop out these little smart things that are like well they're just like little bumblebees that have a, a program in them and they seek you out they're very accurate and they just go up and you know hit you right in the head you can see why that would be an easy sell and you can see why that there are people who will i'm sure are developing things like this again they they probably are out there all are out there already who who will go sit down in front of a group of guys at the pentagon and say hey how how sweet is this you know let's draw up a contract right here you know you give me a few billion dollars i'll hand you a few billion of these things um but yeah do we uh do we start allowing ai to kill us um to make that decision does that seem like it might be a bad idea or are we just being a little too paranoid and missing a great opportunity to do things cleanly you can see both sides of this but it's something, I guess, that you should start at least thinking about because, again, the technology is there. What they can do with these tiny drones now and how well they can be controlled is astounding. The facial recognition is astounding. The lightweight power supplies that operate these things are astounding. 
and uh, I am sure, I mean, half the time if I see a bumblebee or a dragonfly outside my window, I don't know what the hell it is. It could be a little drone, because I know they exist. So, yeah, is it a good idea for us to basically program these things to make a decision to go kill that person? You might say, well, don't be silly, Josh, that's ridiculous. Okay, but I'm telling you, I guarantee you there are people at the Pentagon who were thinking about it. And if you think that's ridiculous, well then, you know, you might want to think about all the the options because eventually you're probably going to have to give an opinion on this. And so far, we, uh, especially here in America, have been pretty lapsed about allowing our technology to look in on us and uh, listen in on us and record uh, what we are doing. There are more protections against that in European countries than there are here in the United States. Um, So, I mean, you really have to think about uh, the ethics of how far we are willing to let this artificial intelligence go because sometimes it could be like the old pandora's box you know you 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 open it up and you you can't put the genie back in the bottle right it's too late so anyway hope you've enjoyed that little update today i gotta run so i can get ready to do my interview tonight and uh, i presume i'll be posting that interview when it is finished but uh always good to well to hear from you so don't forget you can go to joshuapwarren.com there's no period after the p Go to joshuapwarren.com and you can scroll down and find my email address. I read every email. I can't always answer each one, but I do read every one. And uh, I'm going to be giving you some more amazing updates very soon. I think I'm going to be shooting some videos this week and I'm still working on editing the stuff I shot in Milwaukee. Uh, I have a new product coming out. There's a lot of stuff going on right now. So... This podcast will keep you updated best I can. It's called Joshua P. Warren Daily, because I try to leave one for you every day. Uh, It's always short. It's always free. And if you click the link, then you can subscribe through various means, or just follow me on Twitter, at Joshua P. Warren, at Joshua P. Warren, and I will tweet when a new one is available. So that is it for today. Hope you've had a great weekend. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your interest and support. Thank you for staying curious. And I will talk to you again soon.